light number one up and two and three down. There we go. All right. Um, so this is our passage again this week. You may remember if you were here last week, we talked about, uh, we picked, there's 15 words here. We picked six of the words and uh, they were all the ones that have to do with sort of relational fallout of what happens when you live sort of by the flesh um, in your relationships. Um, this week we're going to talk about um, the other nine and I'm trying to keep this a family show. So I'll do my best, all right? But if, if there's some stuff you just don't want to answer questions about this afternoon, I get it. Um, I want to, kids can help out back there and stuff. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm, what I'm doing is I'm taking these words and I'm putting them in context. Uh, we are separated from this ancient letter by about, what was that? I don't know, by about 2,000 years. And uh, in those 2,000 years, um, a lot has changed in our minds. And so um, Paul has a specific lifestyle in mind. Um, and so I think if we can get into the mindset of the early, you know, um, the early first century Greco-Roman slash Jewish slash Christian culture, uh, we can, we can understand sort of how their daily activities were lived out and how Paul is saying, well, here's how followers of Jesus ought to be lived. And and here's why, um, here's what it'll do for you. Here's what it'll do for the world. Um, and then we can see, well, people wouldn't live like that anymore today, but we have our own versions of all of these things. And so we're going to bring that into today's context. Okay, so um, I'm going to try to move fast because there's like nine words. And so I'm just going to give you the best definitions I can. And as this thing grows, you're going to gain a better context of exactly, oh, that's, it sort of all sort of fits together. There's a big picture he's trying to paint. So let's pray and ask God for wisdom and for the ability to focus. And uh, yeah, let's pray. Father. We love you. Thank you for what you're doing here. Thank you for these people that you've brought here. Um, give us wisdom. Give us uh, not just knowledge, but the ability to take that knowledge and, and, and know what to do with it. Don't just let us um, hear these things and, and, and feel nice, but let it spur us to action and to vision and, and to having uh, a better view of what this world can be like and what your gospel can do for the people around us and for ourselves. Thank you for everything you were doing here. In your name, amen. Okay, so um, I'm just going to jump into this. I'm going to skip the whole first slide thing, and I'm just going to jump right into the first word. The first word is this word fornication, um, and it's, it's not a word that we use so much anymore today, although Sam, one of our elders, says, you know, when I, we lived in, 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 uh, in Jamaica for a while, like, I heard this a lot. Like, this is, people still use this word a lot. Like, y'all be fornicating, stuff like that. Um, but so the word, the word that is here um, is actually two words. It's the words uh, mokea and the word porneia. And, and we're reading it in the ESV. They put them together into one word, uh, fornication. So um, mokea means, is specifically a word that means adultery, adultery in the first century. It's funny because um, in, their, in the ancient first century Jewish mind especially, ideas like premarital sex didn't actually exist. It was, it was if, you, if you gave yourself to someone physically, um, you were giving them, yourself to them fully, um, all of you. you. You were sort of, it was sort of this commitment, like you basically were married to them. Um, it's this totally different sort of mindset that by receiving someone, you're receiving all of them. Um, that would be an honest view of, of first century Jewish sexuality. So, um, and then the word porneia, basically it's sexual illicit acts. And, and the general definition of this idea is relieving casual desires in illicit ways. It's this affirmation that, yes, there are these casual desires that we have. And it's also an affirmation that there are ways that, that they are to be handled that are 
um, healthy um, and that are meaningful and that are spiritually higher. So um, chastity is this interesting thing. Uh, chastity is this, is this really, it's, a, it's an invention by Christians. There is no religion or, or faith tradition prior to Christianity that promoted the idea of chastity. It, it, it's this, it was a brand new thing that started in the first century with the, with the followers of Christ. Um, even in the Old Testament, if you read that, there, there, was, this, there was a sexual ethic and, and a sort of a, um, a mindset that had to do with sex that, that it was supposed to be used for a certain way, but you also read about all the leaders of, of Israel, um, many of whom had tons of wives. It wasn't a fully developed ethic. Um, you have the prophets visiting prostitutes. You have tons of different things. Um, but in the Christian communities, the idea of chastity was this brand new thing. Because in the, in the first century, pretty much worldwide, um, sex was like hunger. It was just something to be gratified. Anytime, anywhere. Um, and the Christians entered in and, and, and talked about this whole new way of existing. Um, and this whole new way of handling um, what, what we believe are the higher, more divine things in life. Um, and so, the, simply put, the Christian idea was, was simply that, that the heart was created for a certain kind of relationship, one in which, which sort of, um, it forces the other person to enslave themselves to one person. It, it's two people enslaving themselves to another person um, forever. It, it's, this, it's this binding of hearts in its way that, that models our faith in Christ. Um, and so our relationship with these people we bind ourselves to should mirror Christ. Um, and so you'll, you'll see a lot of times in scriptures, the word idolatry and the word adultery will be sort of combined. Um, we follow one God, we commit ourselves to one person. It's sort of this all integrated sort of idea. Um, and so, um, so we're going to take this idea, and, and, and Paul sort of is going to put this idea in, in this bigger context. And so we're going to keep moving and look at the other words and get a bigger context of it all. Um, the word impurity is the next word. It's the word akatharsia. Everyone say akatharsia. It's fun to say. It's a good word. Um, so uh, the best way really to describe this word, we call it impurity. Um, it's sort of a weak definition. It's, it's a definition, yes. But the word has a lot of meaning in the ancient world. It was used tons of different ways. Um, here's a great way to describe it. Uh, a picture of um, a, a field of fruit trees which have not been pruned at all um, and which are now no longer producing fruit, which are <clears throat> pretty much going to waste. There is a farmer who owns the land who is not working it and ignoring um, the importance of, of what he can do here to bear fruit, to feed thousands of people, yet he allows it to lie fallow and go bad, not pruning. Um, in the ancient world, they would look at this and they would, they would call this a catharsia, a whole field of a catharsia. Um, also, we have, so we have a lot of ancient writings that we've gathered, um, and we have tons of different ways that this word was used. There's actually, we have one instance of this, of this word being used to describe pus, which is gross, um, of an unclean wound. Like basically someone has a cut and they don't clean it. And this is what happens in acatharsia. Um, we have this word um, used to describe a pile of unsorted material, acatharsia, a pile of things which aren't as they should be, aren't sorted. Um, and so from all of this, we can sort of gauge what Paul is referring to when he uses this word. Um, 
There is a positive version of this word. It's not akatharsia, it's katharos. Um, and that is sort of the positive use of it. And some of our ancient texts that we have, um, one of them describes, oh man, um, a house. It's sort of a, a real estate document, an ancient real estate document, and a house that was left in really good, clean order. Um, that, house, house, that house is considered katharos. Um, it's clean. Um, and then we also have an ancient temple document that talks about this word being used um, for somebody who was clean enough to enter into their temple to approach their altar to offer their sacrifices to whatever god they were there to worship. And so this person was described as, well, they're katharos. They can go and approach the altar of Dionysus. Um, so from these words, you can gauge sort of what, how this word is to be used. Um, it is um, a life here. Let me see what else we have for definition-wise. Um, it's, it's without order. It's chaotic. It's purposeless. It's something that has been abandoned. It's a life that is lived carelessly. There's loose ends that are untied. Things being um, where they should not be. It's disorder. It's you're unpruned. Your life is directionless, um, purposeless. You're an unclean wound. You are drifting. You're letting things fall apart. Your relationships and your opportunities um, and your health and your time. And it's sort of like you've given up and you're just coasting. And you're sleeping in late and you're eating bad. And this is you. Akatharsia. And we feel like this like several days a week. And then there's these parts of your life that, that you just kind of haven't touched in years. And they're just going. And it's just, yeah. What happened to, what happened to so-and-so? You guys were best friends. Yeah, I don't know. We drifted apart. That's what this is. Um, how's your, you know, um, you start talking about faith. And you can see like their eyes glaze over and and you grew up together and you had this strong way, this strong belief and hope in the divine that, that God was doing something with you in your life. And now there's just, yeah, I kind of gave up on all that stuff. I kind of just kind of let it go. Um, it's, it's unpruned. I just, I just haven't thought about it in a long time. It's two people that are married and living in the same house but have become completely estranged to each other. So it's not, we call it impurity, but it's much more than that. It's abandon of meaningful things. Um, it is not the kind of person who finds God in what they're doing. The person who finds the divine in what they are doing is the person who does it with meaning and purpose, knowing that there, there is a point to it and that, and that every day um, is a chance to, to live, to do something different, to do something meaningful and good, to change direction, that tomorrow will be different than today because things will progress and move forward. Um, and it is, it is somebody committed to embetterment of themselves, of the world, of establishing the kingdom of God, not just in their hearts, but in the hearts and minds of the peoples around them. Um, and Paul says, one of the ways you'll know that you're living by the flesh, just look at your life. How many things have been abandoned? Where are you? What's your plan here? Um, let's go to the next word, sensuality. The word is eselgia. The word, um, the word sensuality, we tend to use it today as um, to talk about like pie and cake. Uh, it's, you know, it's sensual, you know. Um, it's, it's pretty lame how words change over the years. That's not um, what the word means. Um, the word basically uh, means readiness for pleasure. And I guess if there's a nice piece of pie there, I'm ready for it. Um, but it's, it's readiness for pleasure. And the idea of readiness for pleasure, it's someone who has like zero thoughts or cares, like 
sounds fun, let's go. You know, it's, it's um, but that's really super destructive to you. I, you know what? Put it on the pile of all the things that are destructive in my life. I've given up. This thing is fun. So you, you see like this progression of these words as they move and, and each one sort of stacks on top of the other. Um, and so you have three words here that talk about a trajectory in your life. And it's not, it's not a good one. Um, and so it starts out with sort of disregard for, for the, the, the weight of sex. And, and if you read any psychology book, they're going to they're gonna talk about um, um, the misuse and abuse of sex is one of the most damaging things for, the, for, the, for humans, um, for our hearts, for our, for our minds, um, for our relationships. Um, and then it moves from that into sort of the carelessness and the misuse that spreads to every other part of your life. And then it, it ends up with complete disregard. Wrapped up in this word is the idea um, in the ancient mind that um, it's a complete disregard for the advice of other people who have been there, uh, the complete disregard for people who have been successful. And you say, well, I, I don't need your advice. I don't care. I want to do this. I want to do this. It's, it's the person who asks advice. You know, I, sometimes people call me and say, hey, here's where I'm at. What do you think I should do? And they're not calling me asking me what I should do. They're calling me telling me what they're going to do and, and hoping that I agree. And I'm kind of like, well, here's actually, that's, that's a bad idea because this and this and this. Here's what you should probably do. Yeah, but I can, yeah, but I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Okay, so you're going to go ahead and do that. <laughs> Call me when it's bad. We'll walk you through some cleanup steps. It, that's, I mean, it's, and this is how it goes. Um, that's what this is. Um, and so there's two other words here that sort of stack on top, but it's one of them is fits of anger. The word is, it, it's spelled themos, but it's, it's pronounced thumos. Everyone say thumos. Thermos, right? It sounds like that. Um, it's, uh, it's simply a word that, okay, so the definition is fascinating. A spirited stallion. How great is that? They should have just written that. Sensuality, a spirited stallion. It basically, it's, a, it's, it's sort of like, it's, sort of, it's, a, it's a euphemism, it's a metaphor, it's sort of like calling somebody a wild card. You know, like it basically, it directly refers to somebody who gets like the slightest thing just makes them super, super angry and they deal with their uh, fit of anger and then they're just calm again, right? Like a spirited stallion. That's exactly how they described it. Um, and then the next word stacks on top of that one. It's the word rivalries. It's erethea. So that, this word is, I'm just going to put the definition up. It's, uh, it's, it's cooperation or work done only for pay. So let's connect these words. It's a person who is down for whatever, um, long as it's fun, um, has given up on lots of meaningful areas in their life, doesn't have any drive for anything of, of, in the divine world or even in the physical realm um, that is healthy, that isn't moving towards anything. Um, they can't even control their own emotions. Like a spirited stallion, like you kind of approach it like this, like, good boy, good boy. We're going to go get some donuts. Do you want to come? Um, <laughs> It's, it's like a just, like, and, and so now, on top of this, anything that they actually do that is good, they're not doing it because it's good. They're doing it because they're going to get something out of it. There's no thought for anyone but themselves. This is the person that is being described here. No thought for anyone but themselves. Um, so, last week, I, I sort of glazed over a verse from Romans uh, chapter 7. 
And I didn't spend any time on it, really, because I kind of wanted to focus on it this week. And so here we go. Uh, uh, The verse kind of goes like this. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. So Paul, um, if you actually read this chapter 7, he goes into great detail on this. And there's plenty of other places in Scripture where he goes into a lot of detail on this idea that he's at war with himself. And that you are at war with yourselves and that we are all sort of at war with ourselves. Um, so I kind of want to, oh, okay. So I, I kind of want to open this idea up uh, for a minute here because um, your consciousness tends to portray itself as an observer. Um, in other words, you are in your body and you're stuck in there and you're looking at your, your eye holes and you've got control of these things, but not really. Like they're kind of going to do what they want. And you're just along for the ride. And we, our consciousness likes to portray itself like that. Like, like, man, don't you wish you could do things different? I really do, but I can't. I know. Um, and, and you want to... So you, to yourself, you convince yourself that you're some kind of observer in your actions. Um, but so I want to I talk about... And, you know, this is, this is a huge illusion. It's something that you convince yourself of. It's something we collectively can have convinced each other of. It's a massive illusion. And, and any real look at even... even the science of, of neurology and, and all of this, um, it, it paints a completely different picture. So we tend to think of, uh, so there was this book a long time ago written uh, called The Starfish and the Spider, and it was great. It, it's, you know, it just, it's, it, it's a kind of a leadership book. Um, and so one idea is that a lot, of, a lot of corporations are run like a spider. There's a head, and that head makes all the decisions that control all the limbs. But a starfish has sort of this centralized brain that is spread out. Um, and so everything's kind of moving individually, and everything kind of has a vote, and the starfish starts moving, and the, we don't know how the decision is made, but it's kind of like, we're doing this? Okay, I'm go, I'll go with it. Let's go. Um, and so the human body, um, the vast majority of the decision-making comes from the brain, but, uh, and there's these things called neurons that are firing, and, and they are sort of trying to make all the decisions for you, but in fact, this isn't the only place you make decisions from. Um, there are many parts of your body that, that have a vote in what you do and what you don't do. Um, for instance, your gut, other than your brain, uh, has more neurons than any other part of your body. Uh, in other words, your gut thinks. Um, when, you, when you try this sometime, uh, carry around um, a pad of, I do this a lot, I carry a pad of notebook around and, and, I, and I write down different thoughts in it. And for a little while, I was actually writing down how I felt 40 minutes after every meal. And I noticed a pattern that there's some things I eat and I'm, it makes me happy. And I make better decisions. And there's some things I eat and I get grumpy and I take naps. And <laughs> your gut has actually a lot of power. It has a vote in what you're going to do to decisions you're going to make. Um, and there's other places in your body that have a, a sort of a vote as well. Um, the largest organ in your body, your skin, um, uh, has a vote in it. There's neurons there. And, and there's thousands of parts of your body that actually are kind of voting together. So uh, when Paul writes about how, like, how he's a conflicted being, like he's at war with himself, he's actually, neurologically, he's right. Um, did Paul understand science? Absolutely not. The Bible's not a science book, and science was invented about six years ago. The Bible finished being written about 2,000 years ago, so there's not science in it. It's, 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 it's a spiritual book. Um, and so Paul's not writing about that, but Paul knows people. Paul knows human beings. Um... And Paul hits some very profound things when he writes about this. Um, what he's basically saying is, um, your beliefs, like you, you have the ability to, to, 
to, um, to act how you would like to act. And yes, you will be a bit at war with yourself. But what we know, especially from even modern scientific research in neurology, is that the things that you believe um, will determine how you behave. For instance, in Paul's day, Paul lived in what would be called, um, a, for lack of a better term, a rape culture, which meant um, there was this description that um, of, of men as these sort of animals with these sex drives that could not be controlled. Um, and when I was growing up, I heard a lot of this. A lot of sociologists say that we're actually in this kind of culture today. It comes and goes in different societies, and it's not ubiquitous around the world. It's different cultures. But we basically teach our, our young boys, now you have this drive, that you, it's, it's a sex drive that you cannot control, and no matter what you do, you won't be able to control it once it's engaged. So um, you need to be... Um, uh, you need to be making sure that, that, uh, that, that women are covering themselves up all the time. Um, and you need to be making sure that um, you don't do this and this and this. Because once this thing gets engaged, watch out. And, and also, so this basically means that we don't hold men responsible oftentimes for the decisions that they make sexually. Um, we put all the blame on women because men can't control themselves. But the fact is, this is false. Um, the fact is, all of neurology has even taught us um, that this is culturally formed. And the things that you believe about yourself, you actually become. And if you tell little boys this, they believe this. They end up um, believing that they cannot control themselves at all. And so your beliefs, the things you believe about God will give you hope and different things. The, the things that you believe about justice, the things that you believe about grace and reconciliation will actually give you, give you the ability to change these things in the world around you um, and in your own life. Um, so for instance, in the Victorian period, actually, um, it was backwards. We taught that women were unable to control themselves and that men were in full control and that men were uninterested in sex and people behaved accordingly. And so that was very recent history and we've switched this now. Um, and so what we believe, what, when, we, what, ugh, when we believe that we cannot make good decisions, that we're incapable of controlling ourselves, that others can order their lives and grow and change but not us, guess what? All of those things become true about you. When you believe your life can't be made more orderly, when you believe you can't connect with God, when you believe you can't become a, a, a whole person, um, when you tell yourself this and you believe this and you hear this, the things you hear, the things you believe, that is what you become. But if you believe that God is making you whole, if you believe in sanctification, if you believe that God is making you this person um, who you will one day fully become, you actually will be put on this path and move towards it. Um, because when we talk about living by the Spirit, when Paul writes about living by the power of God, um, here's what he's basically saying. Um, I'm not a slave to my flesh. I live by the Spirit of God who is present in and around and through me. I'm not living by the power of my body, but by the power of a holy and different God um, who is higher than creation, who... who um, whose image is in me, and so I am higher than the rest of creation, and so I have this ability um, in this soul that is connecting with the divine, and I can do better than living by the flesh. I can live by the spirit. It's far more hopeful that there is a God who is speaking to me and guiding me, and I have the power to conquer these things. So let's move on um, to the next word because this is where it gets into um, sort of the message that we receive and why the message of Christianity is so different. Because Paul, um, what he wants them to pull away from is this idea of idolatry and pagan worship. And so he works this into um, all of this. So the next word he has is this word idolatry. 
And literally, the Greek word is idolatria. <laughs> it's not any different. Um, and so idolatry, the literal translation of this word is the pagan opposite of Jewish worship. I know in modern day, we don't have these kinds of pagan temples all around us. And so we tend to make idolatry more of a, more of a, a metaphorical idea, like you like your bicycle or your car more than Jesus. Um, but when Paul talks about idolatry, he is actually talking about a specific thing. Um, the things that were going on around them in their city were shocking, the way that people used to worship the pagan gods. Um, for instance, um, this is Pergamon. In Pergamon, we, I've showed you this picture before. This is a, the theater in Pergamon. Now, behind the ancient temple of, of Pergamon was, um, and the same stuff used to go on in Galatia, there is a temple behind it that's called the Temple of Dionysus. There is even a theater to Dionysus. And basically, the people, before they went to the, to the, to the theater to watch a show, they would go to the pagan temple, and they'd, they'd make an offering, uh, give some alms or whatever, and they would receive all, all the free wine that they wanted. They'd get super drunk, and they'd go and they would watch a, um, a play. And after the play, they would go um, to the next temple um, of Dionysus. And in this temple of Dionysus, I kid you not, as gross as this sounds, there would be unlimited raw meat and alcohol. And the people would gorge themselves on raw meat uh, until, and, and they would drink until they threw up in this big centerpiece in the middle. And everyone would be throwing up in it. And then they would go eat more. And they would do this over and over again until they hallucinated. And they would use these hallucinations as messages from God. And this is one of the ways that they would worship. And so Paul, writing to these Christians, he's kind of saying, um, this, everyone around you is living this insane existence. You are different. We, Christians, are a contrast community as the Israelites were. We are supposed to live different in this way, live for higher things, um, things that are, that are good and just and holy, things that people can look to and say, um, we should listen to the Christians. They, they've, they've figured some stuff out here. Um, and so idolatry, when he paints this picture, where Americans have this idea of money, they had a specific idea of the things that would go on in the pagan temples. Um, and so... Um, he basically he's saying our worship because remember the definition is the pagan opposite of Jewish worship um, and so basically he's saying our worship is, is the complete opposite of them and so then we get to the next word witchcraft now when we hear witchcraft we think what like Harry Potter <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons right um, that's and, and growing up when I hear witchcraft this is what I would hear about and people put out these DVD series about the occult and stuff and say this is why we don't the Bible says not to do witchcraft the actual word for witchcraft uh, there's some of that I guess is in there but the actual word for witchcraft is this word pharmakeia and you can look right at the word and see well that's about something else um, the word pharmakeia literally means the use of drugs that's what it means um, we translate it witchcraft uh, depending on on Different time periods in Christianity, these words are translated different. Kind of whatever is the big focus of Christianity at the time. Um, and, and not every version of scriptures is going to put witchcraft here. Um, some people are going to have uh, some different words. Um, but basically, uh, it, it's the use of, of drugs, which... Um, so the, the, the root of this word is pharmacon, which means mixed poisons. Um, and the idea is this is also connected with pagan temple worship. The hallucinations, the things that people would do to get to an ecstatic state to see things and hear messages from these um, gods that they believed were speaking to them. This goes perfectly with everything else Paul has been saying about how people live their lives around them. 
um, living for pleasure, living for just all of this, like ready for pleasure at any given time. Um, and Paul is, is heightening the human experience. He says, look, Jesus came to give you life abundantly. What you are seeing and, and what they are asking you to take part in, um, it has never and will never bring about real meaningful life and joy. Um, now this verse has been used, uh, it's been misused by Christians uh, to, to, to really cause different sort of sects of Christianity to kind of say, well, we don't go to the doctor because literally the word means use of drugs and so we don't go. When you get things out of their context, they become dangerous and you can kill people. We've seen this throughout history. Um, this is why we read the Bible the way that we do, in context. Um, and so you move from that. It, again, this, verse, this passage is pointing out the stupidity of people who don't have a high view of their own minds, of their own purpose, of their ability to live a meaningful and purposeful life. Um, but a life going from event, event, event to event, just trying to, to feel something, if you will. And then we connect it to the next word. Drunkenness is the word methe. And, uh, and, and here's the thing about drunkenness. Drunkenness wasn't as rampant in the ancient world as it is now. You may not realize this. Um, although people drank way more than they do now, um, but it was, it was different. It really was. Um, in the ancient world, um, people drank more wine than they did milk. Um, even children drank wine, but they would mix the children's drinks, like three parts water, one part wine. Um, but, but people controlled themselves not to get drunk. The drunkenness, uh, we, they didn't have bars, um, they didn't have dive bars or whatever. They didn't have all this stuff that people would go to and just sit down and drink a whole bunch. Um, that, the ancient view, of, like sort of version of that would be the pagan temples. That's where you went to take part in the pagan worship of the gods. And so you would go there and do all the things that we already talked about and get super drunk on top of that. All of this is connected. And then you get to the next word. Uh, oh, yeah, so it means strong drink, but it has a specific context. So the next word, the word orgies. Um, I, I'm not exactly sure why they picked this word in the ESV. Um, it's a, sort of a misrepresentation of what's going on, um, although I'm sure it was part of it. Um, the other times, other um, sort of translations, you're going to see words like revels, carousing. The word is komos. Um, and the, the word komos simply means excessive feasting, but you can't just take a, 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 the base of a, of, a, of a definition. You have to take how it was used culturally. So the word komos was actually a word that described the worshipers of, this, of the god of wine, Bacchus, in his temple. And they would go and, and they would have these huge parties. Um, and when they gathered together, they were called the komos, the worshipers of this god. And they would party it up, get drunk, Whatever happened there, happened there. And this is the last word he puts. Um, and it sort of encompasses everything that has come before it. So, all right. So here we are. Um, we've gone through all 15 words. And, and, and these 15 words sort of describe what it looks like to, for the first century eyes to see people living by the flesh. Night after night. This was their existence incomplete, like no control of their own bodies. Every night, the same rituals, 
destroying their own societies, destroying everything about their relationships and all of it. Um, and then Paul follows this up with this, with this verse, Galatians 5.21. He says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now again, what we tend to read when we read this is, oh, it means they're going to hell. When Paul is talking about inheriting the kingdom of God, he's talking about something much bigger. Um, Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God is at hand. He's not talking about a disembodied soul flying away into heaven. What he's talking about is sort of, in a way, bringing that heaven here. It's, it's, it's while you are alive, what kingdom are you a part of? And how do you inherit this kingdom of God? And so basically we have um, Paul describing two different things. Um, uh, this relational life that is moving away from others, who is destroying joy, um, like we talked about last week, moving away from people, living in fear. And then, and then there's this physical life that he describes that is pointless, it's pathetic, it's one in which you are not even in the driver's seat of your own words. And maybe some of you, this is you, and this is how your kind of evenings go, and this is kind of how you're living, and you spend your weeknights and your days just trying, just trying to have fun and trying to find something, and, and, and you're not finding that meaning, that purpose. It's, it's not there. You're not going to find it. And Paul says, that is not how you inherit the kingdom of God. Inheriting the kingdom of God is found in a completely different way. It's found in a holy life, a different life. A life centered on higher things, godly things, holy things, divine things. And when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God is at hand, what he's saying is you have to have the sort of this sense of faith that what you're moving towards, the kingdom of God that is coming in the future one day, that we will be a part of, that kingdom, in a sense, is here. When Jesus says it's at hand, he's saying it's available to you now. It's then, but it's now. It's available to you right now. And so there is this sort of this way, like, you, you must live as if it's already happened. You must live like you're already there. You're a kingdom of, N.T. Wright describes it as the already but not yet. And so we live our lives as kingdom, as citizens of the kingdom of God, um, believing all the things that will come have come in our own hearts, in our own lives. Again, the things that you believe about yourself become true. And so if you listen to what the rules of the world living by the flesh are telling you, you have no control over yourself. You have no ability to make things better. You have no ability to change. You're just, you're just along for the ride. Then you will live accordingly. But if you believe that you are being sanctified and that God is moving in your life, that God is guiding you, that you are loved, that you are being pulled into something better, and pushed, if you believe that um, you are forgiven, that God has, has given you the grace, you need to reconcile things. And if you look at others as these are the children of God, the icons of God, the image of God is in them. And this is how you live? And this is what you believe? Your behaviors will follow. You will be able to live a different way. So if you believe in, in the doctrine of sanctification, that God, which is an essential Christian doctrine, James writes a lot about it, it's the idea that God will continue to work in you and make you into what he wants you to become. And if you believe that, you will live this way. And this will indeed happen. And you will overcome these things that have entrapped you and ensnared you for a decade and a half or longer. You see, one of the big messages of modern evangelicalism for the last 15, 20 years has been a message 
um, a particular way of describing you. Um, it, it's about what you're not, basically. Uh, and you are described, you and I are described as um, a filthy, wretched sinner, incapable of change, and you're disgusting in the sight of God, and you are nothing, and God is everything. And God is so disgusted by you that he had to do something about it. Um, and, and, and this is one way that, that the church has described people really over the last 50 years. It's been the new invention. Um, I, I believe that's a half-truth, if not less. Um, I believe that's your middle name, not your full name. You were created in the image of God. That's your first name. First off, intentionally, purposely created by God. Life, your life is a gift. I, 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 uh, I, I, I tweeted out this morning. I hate that word. Um, <laughs> this morning, it popped in my head, and I was driving here, and I'm like, man, life is not a test from God. Life is a gift from God. That is what this is. It's not a test. It's a gift. You are intentionally created. And you are fallen and broken, yes. There are parts of you that are absolutely destroyed. And you did that. But that is not your last name. Your last name is grace, mercy, forgiveness. You are loved, you are forgiven, you are being made whole again. And if you believe that, if you believe this, this middle name about yourself, that tends to, and from what everything I've seen growing up in the church, um, you actually tend to become this. Or you tend to look at everyone else this way. And treat them accordingly. But this last name that you have been given is good. And it leads to bigger and better things. I mean, God, in the scriptures, you are called tons of different names. And they're incredibly beautiful. And when we read the scriptures, we see these things. We see the story of just how much God thinks that you are worth walking through intense pain and suffering for just to get back to you. And so all of that Next week, we're going to move into what it actually looks like to live as a follower of Jesus, live by the Spirit. Um, we should be moving towards each other. We should be living purposefully. Um, our joy and our pleasures are not found in all of these things that we've talked about. Those actually bring about more brokenness and more pain. There's a place for everything. There is um, a catharsia. Things, things should not be... Um, just scattered and piled up and made useless. Catharos is what we're going for. Things should be orderly. Because we believe in a God who is moving things towards order. We believe in a God who is moving things towards rightness and justice and who indeed can take all of these. We believe he will take everything that is hurtful and painful and it will be used up for his glory in the end. That's how good he is at this. And so all of this is part of your life. And so we respond by taking communion. Our communion service, you guys can go ahead and take the elements and, and gather and spread around the room if you would. As we take communion, we come to the brokenness that Jesus himself endured. The broken body, the poured out blood. And we come to this brokenness, this pile that looks useless and what good could ever come of this suffering. And we see that we are fed and we see that Millions of people for thousands of years have taken comfort in the fact that God knows what we're going through. God is familiar with your suffering and, and the body of Christ was broken for you. The blood of Christ was poured out for you and we believe this brings about the healing of the nations. And so this is what we teach and this is what we do when we gather. So our communion servers are going to gather around the room if, if, uh, 
If you would, I would love if you join us in taking communion. It's not difficult. Take some time in, in silence and prayer. Think about these things. Think about the parts of your life um, that are absolutely out of order. Think about a mindset of the, of, of the divine future that awaits and what that will look like. And commit yourself to every day working towards that end. And then stand up and get in line and take a piece of bread, dip it in the wine, and eat it. And be fed. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for what you're doing for us. Um, Continue to change us and mold us and make us into who you want us to be. Give us a clear vision of, of what you have for us to become. Let us believe that you are making us into that and let us move towards it. We pray all of these things in your holy, wonderful name. Amen.